Welcome to this edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Rick Matson, National Apologetics Specialist and Evangelism Coach for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and author of Faith is Like Skydiving and Other Memorable Images for Dialogue with Seekers and Skeptics, as well as his more recent Witness in the Academy. Rick spends a lot of his time on college campuses discussing with students the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel. And this often includes discussions about the biblical view of human sexuality and flourishing and how this relates to the LGBTQ values and lifestyle. So I've invited Rick to join me today to discuss some of his thoughts on this very important topic. Rick, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you, Stan. Good to see you. Let's start off by just talking about how you got interested in this topic in the first place. Probably the two main avenues were my being on the road quite a bit for InterVarsity. I travel around the country doing these sessions called Stump the Chump. <laughs> okay, it's creative. And I'm the, I'm the chump, so it's a little wink-wink, but it's basically Q&A sessions. I'll often give a 15 or 20-minute short talk about the life of Jesus, some other relevant topic, and then we open it up for Q&A, and we have leaders ask questions, but pretty soon everyone in the audience is asking questions. Mm-hmm. These days, we have more questions than time uh, to deal with them. Anyway, LGBTQ often, almost always, comes up in one version or another. I remember one time I was at the University of Chicago, and I was standing up front, and they had taken questions and written them on note cards. And the very first question that the moderator read to me was uh, LGBTQ and the Bible and the church and so forth. And here I was in front of all these smart students. Yeah. And I really felt on the spot, but I had done my homework and I made it through okay. And since then, just keep working on the issue, working on the issue. The other avenue probably is I worked for many years as the campus staff staff for InterVarsity at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, which Mm -hmm. is a very uh, liberal, progressive uh, college. So I worked with lots of students who were a part of the LGBTQ community, uh, many participated in university. And so all the complexities therein, I dealt with them, not just in theory, but Mm. face-to-face with people I really, really loved, really cared about. So this issue is more than just abstract for me, Stan. It's it's close to my heart as well. Absolutely. Well, that's why I wanted to have you on, because I, I think you can give a really fair and balanced view. We hear so many Shrill voices, I think, from different ends of a continuum that uh, I really think the middle way is where we need to be. And I'd love to have you help us think through what that might look like. Uh, You recently wrote a series of blog posts, two blog posts on this topic that were short but helpful. And and you say in in, in the blog, quote, biblical sexuality only makes sense in the larger narrative of the Bible. Isolated by itself, the topic of biblical sexuality seems too arbitrary and rule-based for students to accept, as though God is random, oppressive, and against, quote, two people loving each other in their own way, end quote. What is the biblical basis for human sexuality, in your view, and and its relationship to human flourishing? Did I write that? Wow. You did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I find that if you just go to the prohibition passages, if you just go to Leviticus, which says don't 
don't do this, or go to Romans and said, they gave themselves over to that. Or if you go to First Timothy, or, uh, some of the passages that, you know, come down pretty strongly against homosexual practice, yeah, it, it seems out of context of the larger story of Scripture. So uh, I guess what I want to say is that Scripture starts, assumes a Trinitarian God. And in a Trinitarian God, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you have both unity and diversity. So this is different than Islam, where you have only the unitary God. Uh, one uh, substance and three persons is the ancient formula for Christian faith. And then God creates man and woman. You might say, we flow naturally from who he is. Like he didn't create us just arbitrarily. He created us to have the same unity and diversity. It's the unity of who we are as people. We are humanity. We are created in God's image. And yet we are male and female. And that's the whole story of the creation in the garden. So the animals are created and then Adam is created and then God says it's not good for a man to be alone. And so, you know, you can read that. Well, Adam was lonely, so let's let's create a woman for him. And well, that may be, but it's also the fact that uh, when woman is created, when Eve is created, she rounds out the image of God now in God's creation, that being male and female. Uh, so you have unity and diversity. And then in Genesis uh, 2.24, it says, uh, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So this whole idea of sexual intimacy being carried out, being expressed inside covenant marriage is the template for all of scripture. And it's the template for scripture before the, for the fall, before sin enters the world in Genesis 3. Well, that, that's a really important point because, you know, everything else in God's creation was good and full and complete and flourishing. But Adam, he was not yet full yes. and complete and flourishing. He needed to have uh, Eve to fully be all God had hoped and designed him to be. Mm -hmm. So and that's pre-fall. That's important that to point out. That is pre-fall, yes. Yes, that is very important. Mm -hmm. all, all the prohibition passages then, such as Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, 1 Timothy 1, and, and Romans 1, others, they all assume this template of sexual expression being given inside uh, covenant marriage. And then when you turn to the life of Jesus, you might say, well, uh, maybe Jesus was... <laughs> progressive in some way that Jesus had the opportunity to overturn Genesis 2.24. He could have said, well, no, uh, if a man loves a man and a woman loves a woman and they want to have sexual relations, that's okay. And we're going to overturn Leviticus. And he never did. In fact, in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, when Jesus is asked about marriage and divorce, he goes back and he quotes Genesis 2.24. I just find that so instructive mm -hmm. that this was Jesus' moment to overturn the sexual ethic that was laid out uh, before the fall in the Garden of Eden, and he chose not to. And then if you go to uh, Ephesians 5, Paul, same thing, as he's comparing Christ and the church, uh, he talks about 
Genesis 2.24, it's a man and a woman who have come together in the sexual union, and they are one flesh. And so, Stan, if we got into, you know, kind of the metaphysics of this, the the, the ultimate truth, this one flesh somehow, well, we don't know exactly how, at least I don't know, somehow that one flesh, that coming together represents the the unity, the coming together, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and exactly how that works. I'm not claiming mm-hmm. to know that, but mm-hmm. there's some mirror image there. Maybe we see darkly <laughs> in this mm-hmm. mirror, as the New Testament teaches. But in some way, man and woman coming together represents Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming together their unity. Mm-hmm. Well, and if it truly is God's design for human flourishing, then it makes sense. It would not be something that's changed somewhere along the way, but would be repeated all through the rest of the Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, Paul, others. And so um, so that's a really important point and a helpful point, I think, because so often it is reduced to sort of just a thin moralism. Of yeah. well, we don't like that or don't think that, you know, ought to be or whatever. But, uh, you know, your point is so important that this is grounded in the nature of creation and beyond that, the nature of God himself, such that uh, it, it it it's a matter of human flourishing, not just a mm-hmm. matter of what I happen to think, you know, is, mm-hmm. is, is, is right. Because maybe I, you know, have a certain religious tradition that I grew up in or what have you. Mm-hmm. And the more I study theology, the more I just see the the brilliance of what God has done, that that creation and its beauty flows naturally from God's beauty. Uh, humanity flows naturally from the person of God. We are created in his image. There's a kind of a natural overflow of who he is. So why did God create us to, I don't know, expand the family? I mean, to to share his love. Uh, with these creatures that he's created to bless sure. them. And and we're a kind of development project for him. Hmm. We are created and then we fall away. And then we're brought to even greater heights uh, through redemption in Christ. And that's the whole drama mm-hmm. of humanity. And that takes place from Genesis to Revelation. And the whole story of that, then if you put sexuality into the whole story and contextualize it in the whole story of creation, fall, redemption, and the the final chapter, then sexuality makes sense. But again, as you mentioned, if you just isolate these passages that prohibit certain forms of sexual expression, it seems kind of arbitrary and random. Whereas if you ground it in Genesis, it flows very naturally from who God is. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about the fall then, because it is, you said, part of understanding creation, fall, redemption. What's the effect of the fall then on gender and sexuality of this is understood as part of the creation uh, project of God for human flourishing. Talk a little bit about the fall. Yeah. Well, it just seems to me the fall is vastly neglected on this uh, topic. Uh, You don't hear very much about the fall as a contributing factor uh, around gender and sexuality. So people think the physical body can be impaired at birth, but somehow not uh, gender and sexuality. I guess I want to argue that all of reality is affected by the fall. There's no part of reality that we know of that is unaffected by this uh, curse upon the earth, you might say. So the the curse comes upon the ground. Uh, First, it's the woman's body. 
and the physical labor that she's now going to be in, which is different than the garden. And then Adam and his toils and the earth itself is cursed. And we see Paul pick up on this in Romans chapter 8, where he talks about the the world is now longing for its redemption, longing for the uh, sons and daughters of God, uh, for their redemption, so that it too can be part of that redemption. And that just uh, speaks to this idea that all of creation is is touched, is tainted by the fall. Mm. Uh, so uh, back to Genesis 3, 16, Stan, uh, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. So the physical part, that's, that's a physical uh, effect of the fall. And so physicality is affected. So people are born uh, with disabilities. You're born with a hearing loss. You're born with a missing limb. You're born with a heart defect. And I would argue you're born with uh, disordered gender and sexuality issues. And to me, there's a, a seamless logic between the physical and emotional effects of the fall and the effects of the fall that are concerned with gender and sexuality. So I think whenever we, when a person, let's say, uh, would claim, hey, I was born this way, God made me this way, they are usually skipping over Genesis 3. They mm -hmm. are saying, uh, there is a certain rightness and holiness to me having, let's say, same-sex desires because God made me this way. And unfortunately, that uh, bypasses the idea of the fall. So one of the theologians I worked with on a paper regarding this, he talked about the, the disordered nature of our desires due to the fall. So you were born with same-sex attraction. That's not culpable sin in and of itself. Right, sure. But you are participating in a disordered, disjointed uh, creation, which extends to our very bodies and our uh, very desires. Just like people are born with uh, a predisposition towards, say, alcoholism. Exactly. But we don't assume, therefore, that it is right to pursue that uh, in terms of um, of uh, a, a lifestyle, we we want to say no. That is part of the fall, and just like uh, any other area that's been affected by the fall, there are ways to have that redeemed. Uh, okay. So you're, you're making a, a logically sound point, I think, <laughs> and a helpful point. But as you say, a very often uh, neglected point. I haven't heard that point made much at all. No, me either. It's hardly ever mentioned. People think that. The essence of myself is unaffected by the fall. And mm -hmm. that if the essence of myself is sexuality, which mm -hmm. I would claim it's important, but maybe not right at the essence. Yeah, we we have Freud to thank for that. Yeah, exactly. Emphasis, don't we? We've, we, we've right. sure bought him hook, line, and sinker that totally. sexuality defines our reality ultimately right. of what we are. Right. Yeah. And if the fall affects sexuality, which I believe it does, then we're dealing with a whole new chapter in humanity versus and including our sexuality versus that which was uh, seen in Genesis 1 and 2. So mm -hmm. it's a new ball game. Mm -hmm. And now the question becomes not did God give me these desires wherever they came from uh the fall most likely now the question is how do I manage my desires? So how do I steward mm -hmm. the good and the bad that I was born with and that I grew up with? That's 
that's part of living in a fallen world for us Christians is to manage and to steward the challenges and the resources that we have. And one other place that seems to, uh, to be an area of, well, I think fallacious thinking to be blunt is that uh, this bifurcation between our soul and our body it seems to be Gnostic at root that, mm-hmm. you know, that really our, our body somewhat irrelevant in the sense of, well, I was born and sold to be something different than what I express bodily, which, which is, 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 is a radical Gnostic notion really mm-hmm. compared to, I think the biblical view that we're a deep unity of soul and body that, that we're this, uh, I don't want to say composite because the soul can live without the body. Uh, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, there's this deep connectivity between, what I am in my soul and what, how I live in my body. And it seems yeah. to be rejecting that idea to, to say, well, I was born this way, but I have a body that's different. And mm-hmm. so I have to redefine my, my gender based on that. I haven't seen a lot written about that either. Maybe I'm no, not familiar with the literature, but th- is that in play somewhere? I think so. I've seen references to Gnosticism in some of the reading I've been doing lately. Uh, not in a deep theological way, but it's this devaluation of the physical world. We know that's part of Gnosticism, which uh, for some of our listeners who don't know Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, starts with a G, Gnosticism stands, <laughs> but pronounced Gnosticism, which uh, tends to value the spiritual realm and devalue the physical world and the bodies, going all the way back to the Socratics. But anyway, The body then, when it's devalued, then people say, well, I can do whatever I want with my body because it's no big deal. Mm -hmm. But start reading through Corinthians. Paul is trying to make a a correction on that. And I forget exactly where this is in Corinthians, somewhere between 1 Corinthians 6 and 9, somewhere in there. He says, don't unite yourself with a a prostitute because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you unite yourself with a prostitute, you men who can't control yourselves, uh, you become one with her in flesh. Well, one with someone in flesh is reserved for marriage, but you're not married to this prostitute. So don't think that you can just devalue the body. You can dismiss the body as no big deal. It's just physical. It's just desires. Go satisfy it whenever you wish. I think Paul is trying to elevate the body to something that's part of what it means to be created in God's image. And as you mentioned, the tight connection the tight unity between uh, body and soul, it would be inappropriately then Gnostic, to get back to the Gnostic word, inappropriately so for us to elevate the soul, elevate the spirit, elevate the mind, elevate the emotions on the one hand, and then devalue the body and say, "Eh, it's a throwaway kind of thing. It's going to be gone Mm -hmm. anyway. It's just a tent. We don't really Mm -hmm. have to worry about it. If I want to satisfy it some night, hey, why not get a prostitute? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's the whole humanistic uh, hedonistic values that Paul is arguing against in First Corinthians. He's saying, no, take care of your body. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Value the body and make sure you steward it in the way that God intended. Mm. Yeah, I, I've been actually reading two books that uh, echo some of these themes, I think. I'm wondering if you're familiar with them, if this is some of what you're saying. Uh, if so, we might suggest the readers could uh, look at these for a little more, but the fir- they're both like Carl Truman. Uh, one's more in depth than the other. For the first, it's a little more 
of an academic treatment is the rise and triumph of the modern self, cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to sexual revolution. And then uh, the other book that's a little more, more popular he wrote is called Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Are you familiar wow. with those books? Is this sort of in line with what you're saying? Are, are you taking a little different line than Truman's taken here? Let me put some pieces together. I've dabbled in Carl Truman. I haven't read those books, but yes, I've dabbled in his other stuff as I've seen him in print. And uh, I need to write those down. So when we're done today, well, I'll put them in the show notes. Yeah, please do. Then I'll look at the show notes because I'd really like to to read that. I think some of the same things that you're mentioning, he's unpacking as well, but uh, maybe in different ways. I I, I don't know. So it'd be interesting to ta- yeah. get your take on it after you do read read those. Yeah, I guess I've been saying to college students, graduate students, uh, faculty, that we are not in charge of ourselves. We are caught up in the story of God. So if you start with God and his story and ask, how does my story fit in with the story of God? Then you're going to be in good shape biblically, and you're going to find life. But if you start with the self as culture would prescribe, if you start with a self and then ask, how does God fit into my life? You know, biblically, that's backwards. <laughs> yeah. That's not the way to do it. And maybe that's what Carl Truman is getting at here. I don't know. But if I establish my identity, if identity is constructed by the self, and then I go, oh, I could use some spirituality. And you go out and seek spirituality in the smorgasbord of religions and spiritualities that are out there, then You've deified yourself. You've said, I'm in charge. I'm God. I can fit spirituality into my life. And Paul is saying just the opposite. And so, again, that gets back to who's in charge of my body. Paul says, uh, your body is not your own. Hmm. I, I hardly ever hear that verse quoted in the whole discussion about sexuality. And uh, I think it needs to be brought to the foreground. Well, then let me ask a really practical question that arises from all this. Can there be such a thing as a gay Christian? Well, we need to define terms. I think Mm -hmm. we know what a Christian is, a Christ follower. And then uh, gay is someone who has same-sex attraction. But culturally, the word gay seems to go deeper than that. So I think some Christians have been cautious about using the word gay because it seems to indicate an identity not mm. just an attraction. Okay. So can there be a gay Christian? If that means, can my primary identity be in my sexuality? And then secondly, can I also be a Christian? Then there's probably not such thing as a gay Christian, biblically speaking. If gay just is a synonym for same-sex attracted, then sure, you have lots of Christians who have same-sex attraction and you know one of their might say burdens in life, the cross to bear is to manage and steward those uh, desires. I don't know if that gets exactly what you're asking, Stan, but uh, yeah, it does. It does. It, it sure does. Helpful distinction. What then is God's calling Christians who do experience same sex attraction? What does that look like? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, we need to start off in community. Uh, I find that people who are struggling with identity, struggling with sexuality, they often isolate. So I just Mm. keep, I get so preachy on this, Dan. 
we do stump the chump and I just tell college students, please do not isolate yourself. Things will get worse mm-hmm. if you try to handle this on your own. So please do it in community. And then uh, secondly, we need, I think, positive input into our minds. If we're trying to manage sexual desires, then it doesn't matter if it's gay or straight. If we're trying to manage sexual desires, we need to be, quote unquote, distracted. And I use the word distracted here uh, very intentionally. We need to be distracted with the good things of God. Mm. We need to be caught up in his mission. We need to be involved in uh, vocational. We need to make our vocations and studies of part of our calling of God uh, and not something separate. We need to be reading a scripture and prayer. And I guess what I'm trying to say is we fill our minds and we fill our schedules with the things of God will be less likely to fall into the temptations around sexual desire. And that doesn't matter if you're gay or straight. That that applies to both sides. Right. Philippians and then, uh, 4, 8, right? Yeah. Whatever is... Yeah true, what is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is beautiful and respected, think on these things. Yeah, uh, there's lots of calls in Scripture to walk by the Spirit. And uh, if we make those very abstract, it's probably not going to help us very much. But if we think of walking by the Spirit as walking in community, walking in and through the Word of God, and walking in prayer, then we're going to be in good shape, I think. But it's isolation, it's idleness, it's temptation that sneaks up on us when we are not about the things of God that uh, I think can be a problem for us. Mm. Let me just say that a long term, say a person is same sex attracted, is not going to get married to someone of the opposite sex, although some do. Uh, Then I think the calling is to uh, singleness. And this can seem like an unfair burden at first, but you know, there's lots of people that are called to singleness. And Paul in first Corinthians uh, seven talks about the value of singleness. And let me just read that verse here, Stan, I happen to have it at hand. Uh, So then he who marries the woman does right, marries the virgin. It says there does right. But he who does not marry her does better. And there's, there's quite a bit of, scripture in that text about uh, the value of singleness, of being singly devoted to God and not being distracted by the kind of the cares of this world, which sometimes can include marriage. So probably a lot of us in the church know people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s who are never married or have been uh, widowed, you know, lost a spouse, and they don't have a spouse anymore. And so their calling is to singleness. And then they're sexually called to abstinence and to chastity. Yeah. And that's so unvalued, devalued in secular culture. And actually in the, in the Christian culture, we just, you know, we just don't think that's a live option for any of us. And you're making a good point that well, Paul certainly thought it was. Yeah, exactly. So if Paul is elevating the value of singleness uh, in his text, then why don't we hear more about that in the church? Why don't we talk about it more? And why don't we honor the saints who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s who have never been married Mm -hmm. and have kept themselves uh, sexually pure, uh, kept themselves for the Lord? Mm -hmm. So sometimes I hear the argument on campus like, well, you can't expect me to abstain from sexual activity. 
uh, I'm a gay or lesbian. And so my comeback to that is, well, I, I have a friend who's 60 and she is, she's opposite sex attracted. She's, um, she's straight and she has kept herself pure all these years. And do we think it would be okay for her outside of wedlock to just go uh, in, engage in sexual activity and become one flesh with someone? Well, no, obviously not. Uh, so the rules are the same for folks across the board, whether uh, gay or straight. And I know that can sound harsh, but I think, Stan, the, the earlier question, and I'd like to hear your thought on this, too. The earlier question is, uh, do we believe Jesus when he said, if we follow him, that our lives will be will flourish? Our lives will be abundant. Do we really trust him for that? Or do we think that he's wrong about that and that we need to go construct our own pleasures and our own lives and our own desires? So when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, then he says, and you will find life. So if we are truly going to find life, it's in following him. And do we trust him in that? So I think that's a bit of the issue behind the issue here. Do we believe in God's definition of flourishing and abundance? Or are we going to take those matters into our own hands? And uh, yeah, what do, you, what do you think about that, my friend? We've known each other a long time. and <laughs> We have. I think our theology is probably pretty similar on this. Yeah, I think our theology is is the same. I, my training is in philosophy, as you know, as a Christian philosopher. I'd approach it in those categories, which I think are uh, consummate with the biblical categories. You know, if if we have an essence, then that defines ultimately what we are and how we flourish and living according to what we are is the way to find the good life, to find that which will lead to our full flourishing and, and um, well-being. However, there's been a movement, ideological movement, um, philosophical movement, afoot really since the Enlightenment to deny there are things like natures and essences it's called nominalism yes where everything's a particular Mm -hmm. and so therefore there is no such thing as a a nature or an essence to what we are we're just all particular things and therefore it follows and this is where truman is picking up and i and I, i i appreciate so far what i've read in him that the greatest value shifts from being uh living according to our nature to being expressing our individualism, uh, wow. expressing what we want to be, which is not tethered to anything deeper, i.e. in nature. And mm-hmm. so as a result, it is more and more in the culture uh, assumed that if we have a certain view of ourselves, it must be right because there is no essence that could correct that. We just are what we decide we want to be. And again, like everything, it's ultimately grounded in one's philosophy. And uh, in this case, uh, one's metaphysic of what's real. And I think that's where there's, uh, you know, the, the, the problems I see, because I want to tie it all back to human flourishing. That's what, Mm -hmm. that's where there's common ground amongst all of us. We all want ourselves and others to flourish. Mm -hmm. And it's just a question of what is the proper means to that end? And it comes down, in my view, to, well, the biblical framing or this philosophical framing being the same conversation of there is either something we're designed to be, either theologically God designed us, or looking at it purely philosophically, we have this essence, or there is no essence or design by God 
there's just whatever we want it to be is going to be yeah. good for us. And do we discover that, which I think is the biblical message, right. or do we construct it? There you go. And yeah. so it's sometimes yeah. called constructivism. And mm-hmm. uh, it seems like the biblical model, what God is calling us to, is to discover who we are in him, to, right. to, to seek him out. And then we grow into our true selves. And here's what Jesus says which I paraphrase, but the exact quote is, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. In other words, whoever grasps life and takes charge of it themselves is going to lose it, he says. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And that's the flourishing and the abundant life, I think, that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Let me just share an Mm -hmm. illustration that I often use on campus. And that is, let's say I'm 17 years old. Uh, That was a long time ago for me. And let's say my parents gave me a car and they said, this car is yours, but uh, for the time being, until you're of age, we want you to uh, refrain from driving more than 10 miles outside of the city limits. Uh, we're doing this for your safety, for your goodness, and uh, as part of our family covenant, you might say, uh, we'd like you to do that. Well, then I get the car, I get the car keys, and I'm out driving, and I think to myself, it's my car. It's not my parents' car anymore. I'm the decision maker here. And so if I drive more than 10 miles outside of the city limit, I have gone against the will of my parents. I have violated their will. The same thing is true for biblical sexuality. If I engage in sexual practice outside of covenant marriage, then I am now outside of the will of God. I'm outside of how he designed it. So you can imagine God as this creative designer giving us the gift of sexuality. And he has said, please open the gift inside covenant marriage, inside this long-term commitment uh, where you have witnesses and vows and a ring and, and so forth. And you're married to this person for life. That's where sexuality is to be expressed. And if you move outside of that realm, then you've moved outside of my will and design for sexuality. And I think that's really reflected in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve. Hey, God isn't against. God created sex. They are naked in the garden and unashamed. Uh, What a wonderful thing. But uh, after the fall, that's where we see people exercising uh, the will to uh, satisfaction of these desires outside of marriage. and And God is saying, okay, you've driven the car now outside of those 10 miles beyond the city limits. And that's not how I designed it. And I designed it for your good. And there might be consequences because outside the city limits, there's things that would be harmful to you. So ultimately it comes back to God's goodness and desire for us to flourish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and how much harm you and I now, maybe a little bit later in life, how much harm if we've both seen over the years of people who have stepped outside of marriage and uh, either extramarital affairs or gotten going in other ways outside of marriage it's it's not the pathway to a healthy life in the sight of god we will return to the show in just a moment but first a word from our sponsor do you have a child relative or friend preparing for or attending college what they need most are christian professors who can help them learn to love god with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org 
to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out the other podcast Stan and Dr. J.P. Moreland do together, Thinking Christianly. Whereas this College Faith podcast focuses more on the practical questions of thriving during the college years, the Thinking Christianly podcast is all about the ideas that shape the university, students, our broader culture, and the world. Visit thinkingchristianly.org or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to College Faith. Let's talk a little bit about that middle way I mentioned earlier, uh, because you know you've made the case well. I think that there's a biblical design uh, that God gives for our own well-being, but also that uh, in the culture there's such a strong uh, movement the other way. And as I said, there there now are these extremes between you know, gosh. Uh, we should fully embrace the lifestyle of uh, the LGBTQ plus community or fully reject those in that community. And, you know, like most issues, there, there, there seems to be there's got to be, I think, a middle way. You know, as Christians, we're called to love others as God first loved us. So how can Christian students find that middle way of showing love to their LGBTQ plus friends while at the same time staying true to the biblical teaching on human flourishing and sexuality. It's tough because there's a lot of pressure to conform, to be supportive. So let's say you go off to college and your home church, your spirituality, theology you learned at home was fairly conservative, but you go off to college and maybe your friends are either gay or supportive of sure. LGBTQ community. And now you're either going to be, you know, isolated and alone and have no friends or mm-hmm. support those who are part of that community. And so a lot of students, they make the switch, they make the f- relational emotional switch and then they, and then they backtrack uh, and change their theology to match that experience. And I've seen that, a hundred times. <laughs> but I think a better way to do this is to ground one's identity and walk with God uh, one year away at college uh, in scripture, in prayer, in church, and in your campus fellowship. You have to start there. You can't do this on your own. I'm sorry if I'm a broken record on this. It needs to be in community, but it needs to be in the practice of one's spiritual disciplines. I find that many times students who are waffling in their faith, they're really not. Uh, carrying out their spiritual disciplines. They're not having their daily quiet times, doing Bible reading and prayer. They've begun to neglect those things. They've already drifted away from God a bit spiritually and emotionally. And then when these other opportunities and temptations come along, they're much more susceptible. So make sure you're grounded. Make sure you're walking uh, with the Lord. And then when you go out and face challenges of a variety of kinds, whether it's in the classroom with teachers who might be hostile to the faith in philosophy, in science, in sociology, psychology, all the different disciplines, or in the area of friendships and sexuality, then you're going to be in a much better position to handle the challenges that come your way. The Bible also says to love your neighbor. Okay, we got that part. And love your enemies. Well, Stan, that's a pretty wide spectrum. There's <laughs> not, not a lot of people... 
Yeah, that pretty much covers everybody. So the ethic of love, I would say, is first. And then secondly, pray our way into relationships that we think might be uh, complicated along the area of gender and sexuality. And then there's a very old saying, which has fallen out of favor, but theologically, I think it still works. And that is to love the sinner, hate the sin. I know that's a, it's a cliche and people have criticized it, but I actually, I think that needs to be revived because what you're saying is that you actually do care for this person. You love them as someone created in the image of God whether they are acting as your friend or your enemy, it doesn't matter. You love them, but you still uh, hate all of sin, including this sin, just as God does. So love the sinner, hate the sin, I think is still a theologically sound way to do things. Now let me get more practical here. Mm -hmm. I think when I enter complicated relationships, I want to stop using you statements. In other words, stop using accusatory statements, and start using I statements. Hmm. So if I walk into a relationship, and I'm in one of these right now, I might say, instead of saying, hey, you're doing this wrong, or I disagree with this, or whatever, I might say, uh, hey, th this is hard for me. This conversation is hard for me. Uh, it's hard for me to have beliefs that are probably a little bit different than yours. I really care for you as a person. I just want you to know that uh, uh, this is a struggle for me. Uh, to talk about this and to uh, uh, face some of the choices that might be before us. So what I did is that I talked about myself. Mm -hmm. I didn't accuse them of being wrong. Now, further down in the conversation, further down the road, we might get to the point where I say, you know what, I really don't think you're on the right path here, but I'm not going to lead with that. That's just bad strategy. <laughs> well, it's so interesting because that's uh, a principle in marriage also, right? I've it is. I've read that in a number of books on healthy marriages where your tendency is to accuse your spouse and that exactly. just shuts the conversation down. You just need to start the conversation by you know, sharing, here's what I think or I'm feeling or my perspective. And, and, and it does open conversation in healthy ways. So it's, just, I, I've, I've not heard it applied though, to these conversations. And that's, yeah. that's a really healthy, you have healthy to way it. to approach it. That's yeah, that's good. And I think it also assumes a certain humility. Mm -hmm. It's not placing myself above the other person. Hey, I know better than you. And uh, relationally, I, again, down the road, I'm still going to stand for my beliefs. I still sure. think scripture gives us a true view of reality and all of that. Mm -hmm. That's probably not going to happen in the first five, 10 minutes, right. first hour of a conversation or the first half year, maybe. I mean, these relationships are so complicated sometimes. Down the road, we're going to have the opportunity to have these conversations if uh, the person and I hang in there with each other, which, you know, sometimes we don't. Unfortunately, sometimes people just don't want to talk or they don't want to be in a relationship with me anymore. I'm, I'm usually not the one to leave them. Usually they're the ones who have moved on from the relationship, which uh, can be hurtful. Anyway, down the road, you might have the truth conversation, but early on, it's the relational conversation. And I am expressing, hopefully, a sense of humility by just speaking for myself and not speaking at them, let's mm -hmm. say, mm -hmm. and placing myself above them. So these I statements are just so important. I've got a couple more things to say about that, sure. Stan, but did you yeah. want to chip in no. at all anymore no, about please. these I statements? Okay. Secondly, I really hate to say this. It pains me to say it. I'm going to have, I'm going to tear up as I say it, but I think just have to lower expectations. I know that expectant faith goes the other way on this. 
and maybe that's the the antidote to what I'm saying. But uh, I think if we have super high expectations that these relationships, once they start kind of going sideways, are going to be like they were before. Let's say a friend from high school has come out as gay or lesbian, or transgender, and they are pursuing a whole different lifestyle now. I think it's healthy for us to lower our expectations of what the relationship is going to be relative maybe to what it was before. And again, I really hate to say that, and it's not a universal truth. Sometimes the relationships oddly can thrive in the new circumstance. But I would say, in my experience, nine times out of 10, they don't. Uh, things get a lot harder. And if I lower it, my expectations, I can come in more even-handed. I can come in with less regret and disappointment. And I can probably enter the relationship with more of a smile on my face than if I'm just super depressed all the time about where this relationship is going. So mm. lower expectations. That's a really good word. That's encouraging to me. I've had two very close friends, good relationships, uh, not recover. And uh, yeah. I wonder if it has something to do with how I might have approached it. I really tried hard to have the conversations in the right ways. But uh, yeah, uh, to your point, the relationships are very different now. And, and that's hard. But uh, I appreciate you saying that, uh, you know, uh, it, it just is what it is. And uh, yeah. I, I need to hear that because yeah. uh, I think try as hard as we might to be loving and to... Uh, respect the person yet still not uh, agree with the ethic. <laughs> it often doesn't end well. <laughs> and Stan, if we go to a theology on relationships, we can ask ourselves Colossians four, three is God opening a door for the gospel here. Mm. So at some point I want to speak up and we want to get down to brass tacks and get down to the issues about our relationship and their ch choice of lifestyle and, and maybe theology but uh, Colossians 4, 3 says, pray for us. He's talking to the Colossians here that God would open a door for our witness and that we would speak as we ought. Paraphrasing there a little bit. But I'm always asking the question, is God opening a door for a deeper conversation here or not? If he is, then I need to be like Joshua, bold and courageous and caring and loving. And I need to walk into that conversation and do the best I can and trust the spirit. But if the door is not open to that conversation, don't kick the door in. Mm. I think that is so vital. Mm -hmm. And that gets back to having realistic expectations. I find that people don't want to talk early on. They're creating distance and I need to respect that. My love for them doesn't depend on that. I'm still going to hang in there with them for the long term. I'm still going to be there for them. But if they don't want me, I can't force it. If they don't want to talk, then I can't talk. If the door to witness and to speaking about biblical truth is not open, then I cannot force the door open. I can only wait for the Spirit to open the door. And when the Spirit does, then I need to walk through. And if he doesn't, I need to refrain from that. Yeah. And you're answering another question I, I had. I was wondering uh, what your take was on of whether we should even attempt to reach out and have these type of conversations with uh, those we disagree uh, on this issue with and actually dialogue. And, you know, some would say we should just agree to disagree and all just get along. Uh, but I'm hearing you say, no, there, there, there's a time and a place perhaps when the door opens and, and there can be, if and when that door opens, 
productive conversations and respectful disagreements. Uh, and, and you've given some, I think, really helpful ways to do so. I'd like to hear you say more about that because often I feel, and I'm just speaking personally here, I think <laughs> a lot of others do as well, that I kind of feel like I did when there were bullies in elementary school. If I said anything they didn't like, I'd be, I'd be assaulted. And uh, so the tendency was just to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> and so, you know, I, how, how can we not be bullied, but, but not be bullies either? Because mm. there's a temptation oh, yes. to be the bully. So right. yeah, help me a little more. Right. I think this requires spiritual discernment. I don't mean to dodge the question. I mean, spiritual discernment that has substance. In other words, when I'm mm. in the presence of this person or I'm on email with this person or on social media or chat or whatever it is that I'm exercising discernment of the spirit. I'm asking, I got one ear, my head is tilted down now. I know we're not on video, but imagine my head being tilted down and my left ear is up toward heaven and my right ear is toward this person. I'm ask, I'm actively asking the Holy Spirit, what do you want me to say right now? Mm. And what do you want me to refrain from saying? You're You're in charge of this. And I'm also admitting to God on the front end, this is so dang complicated. I cannot figure this out. Mm-hmm. And I figure my job is to influence my friend, love them one more inch toward the kingdom of God, to bring them to Jesus as best I can, if they're willing, and then let Jesus figure out all of the relationships and the things that have been said and the forgiveness or the lack thereof, the distance that's now between us. I cannot figure all this stuff out. I'm not that smart. I'm not that good, nor do I want to be. I want to give it over into the Lord's hands, and I don't mean to over-spiritualize that. I do mean to actually give it over into his hands. So I walk into this relationship, and I just say, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing here. I need your guidance. I need your wisdom. Would you help me be a loving, caring person? And if you open the door to a theological conversation, in other words, about you know what the scripture says about gender and sexuality, then great, I want to go there. But mainly, I feel like my job is to just get them closer to you, to uh, be a caring person, to have coffee with them, and then eventually to invite them back into fellowship. If they've fallen out of fellowship, to invite them back into fellowship, to invite them back into reading scripture. Uh, So that's all in the back of my mind, but I don't know how it's going to go to get there. I don't Mm -hmm. know what the pathway is going to be. It's probably going to be a very uh, zigzag pathway and there might be times where we make headway and then we regress so it's three steps forward and four back and three steps forward and two back Uh, so all the complications of that are beyond me but if i can bring them to jesus then i think we're going to be in good shape here let me and let me just close that little section off by saying my job is not to change their behavior Mm -hmm. that's up to the lord so If I disagree with their behavior around alcohol or drugs or tobacco or stealing or fidelity or whatever it is, my job isn't to uh, change behavior. My job is to bring them to Jesus. And as long as we keep that in mind, I think we're going to be in good shape. Yeah, that's a good word. Appreciate it. Well, how about some real practical issues uh that christian students might face uh, i'm i'm interested in in how you see all this theory playing out in terms of what the loving response looks like for instance uh if the uh the student 
is uh, assigned a gay or lesbian roommate. What does it look like to to walk down that road as a Christian? Yeah, I think you have to decide in advance what you're going to do. What, well, what you're most likely to do, unless things change. Uh, these are the sorts of decisions you cannot make on the fly. So I might uh, prepare with my community, my Bible study, my friends, my parents, my youth ministry while I'm in high school. I might think ahead like, okay, what if I end up with a roommate who's a gay or lesbian? And then make a plan before you get there, because it's going to be super tough to invent a plan once you do get there and the pressure's on. Mm-hmm. So make no decisions on the fly. Okay. Uh, secondly, I think most campuses are pretty good about accommodating roommate preferences and choices these days. There could be the occasional exception to that, but I've heard of cases where roommates get switched because one's a late nighter and one's an early morninger, <laughs> mm. or one wants guests and the other doesn't, or one plays music right. and the other doesn't. You know, so even for those sorts of reasons, you can often uh, switch out roommates. Um, so if that's the case, then this seems like an even bigger reason to do so. There might be the occasional exception to that where a campus just puts its foot down and says, no, that's discrimination or that's an act of hate or something like that. And then you're going to have to decide, well, do I stay in here or do I move off campus? Mm -hmm. If I can't move to another dorm or another room, then maybe do I move off campus? And at some schools, you're not allowed to move off campus. At some of the private schools, for example, you have to Mm -hmm. live on campus. Yeah, that was my university. Yes, yes. You have have an even bigger choice now. Do I stay at this school? Because you're talking about quite a bit, quite a few hours every day of your life in this room and what it's going to be like. And uh, I mean, just to get down to some of the uh, details here, you're going to be dressing, you're going to be undressing, all those sorts of things happen in a room. Uh, you're going to be showering down the, down the hallway. So uh, you have to take those very practical details into account about whether or not this is the place uh, for you to be. Hmm. I'm not ruling it out. I'm not saying it's impossible to do this. You'd have Uh to be really spiritually and emotionally and relationally strong to carry it out. But I would say for the most part, the students that I have worked with, I haven't seen too many in this situation, but when I think of the level of engagement and maturity, I'd say probably best not to wade into those waters. Hmm would be my overall counsel. Okay. All right. I don't know. What do, you, do you think I'm right well, about that, Scott? Um, I do. I do. Uh, and I especially affirm the first point you made of thinking this through before the situation yes. arises, yes. because whenever you're in a situation, there's so many things that are uh, are in play, maybe even emotionally or, or whatnot, that you sometimes don't think well and think biblically about what what what's the reality here so that's really really a helpful point what about situations where it, it's it's a, a broader context uh, it, it's a dorm you're assigned to that's gender non-conforming for instance where mm-hmm. there uh you know there, there there's a whole range of sexual identities in the same dorm mm-hmm. again plan for that in advance you should be able to decide that for the most part what you're going to do, even live in that environment or not. But let's just say that you decide to stay there. Then I would counsel students to set boundaries on how you're going to engage in the dorm. So 
that means you're probably going to have to set strategies for when you're going to take a shower, uh, when you're going to use the bathroom, uh, or if you're going to tend to use bathrooms more that are on campus and not in your dorm. Uh, making little rules for that uh, for yourself, I think, could be super helpful. And Stan, I don't think this is too weird or out of the ordinary. These are the same sorts of rules that I may, might make for myself if, uh, let's just say, uh, to give an example, let's say I work at a restaurant or I work at an office building okay. and I'm attracted to another person and I know it's not a thing of God. Hmm. And I figure out their schedule. I know where they hang out. And so I construct my schedule as best I can. I plan my schedule as best I can to not have contact with them because I know that when I'm with them, it's a temptation for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, these are all the little practical strategies and rules that we uh, create for ourselves uh, for the rest of our lives. And so being in this complicated dorm situation, I think is a very challenging, but helpful start to what's going to happen for the rest of our lives. We don't just mm -hmm. go knocking on doors. We don't just go walking up to strangers. Uh, we don't wear uh, clothing that's uh, provocative. We, we make all sorts of strategic decisions around biblical sexuality and relationships the rest of our lives. We can make them here too. So setting up those boundaries, setting up your routine, when you're going to do this, when you're going to do that, when you're going to study or not study in the dorm, when you're going to allow yourself to be in the presence of activity or visuals, when you're going to be there or not, uh, you need to make a plan and stick with it. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. I wish I could be way more specific than that, but it depends on the local situation, depends sure. on the particulars of the situation. Sure. No, but thanks. make a plan, I, I would say, and navigate yeah. your way through the plan. Okay. And do it thanks. with help. Don't do it on your own. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a point I keep returning to here. Yeah. That's really helpful, Rick. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I've got two more really practical application type of questions. Can I push you a little bit down sure. the road yes. further? Yes, uh, I think this, these get increasingly difficult. Uh, the, the next is as students get into their latter years, especially senior year, they'll have gay and lesbian friends getting married and inviting them to the wedding. And there's differences of opinions among Christians of what do you do in that situation? And you've thought a lot about how to be both loving and stay true to biblical conviction. Uh, do you have any ideas on or suggestions on that from your perspective? I certainly don't claim to have the final answer on this. I'll tell you my leanings. If the person is a believer in Jesus. The person being who's invited to the wedding or? or uh, no, the person who's getting married. Okay, person is, getting married. Uh -huh. is, yeah, is a believer in Jesus, and yet they have chosen a, an ethic that is outside of what we consider to be scriptural. Uh, so a man is marrying a man or a woman is marrying a woman. I probably would not attend that wedding. Uh, you have a fellow believer here who's deliberately stepping outside of biblical teaching on something and plans to do so for the rest of their lives. I just can't support that. That doesn't mean I don't care for them. doesn't mean I don't love them. I still do. But I can't support that kind of move. A fellow believer who deliberately ignores scriptural teaching for a whole swath of their life, I can't support that, so I probably would not go. If it's not a Christian, that would be different. Uh, now, I don't expect them to have biblical standards in quite a bit of their life. Uh, they might be uh, doing lots of other things and have other attitudes that are not scriptural. 
And that's to be expected. They're just living out their secular worldview. And this is part of it. In that case, I would at least consider going and uh, saying, here, I'm here for you. This is a long-term relationship. I don't even necessarily agree with that, but I'm not going to bring it up here. But uh, we're in this for the long haul. And you're doing the sorts of things that make sense with your worldview. I would probably go to that wedding. But uh, let me ask you, my friend, uh, do you agree with me on this? What would you do? No, that's uh, that's that's where I would come down to. I think, you know, we always attend weddings of people who who have a whole range of views as non-believers that we don't agree with, and by yeah, us exactly. being there, we aren't affirming their view of you know, whatever it is. Uh, we're just there to support them, and we're not endorsing their their view of, of, no, of that no. whole range of things. The whole um, range of things, but it's so different with a believer who's intentionally. Saying, I think that this is right. It's biblical. It's what I'm committing my life to uh, in a, in a substantial way. And uh, so there's a very different responsibility. It seems we have as believers. Now I could be wrong on that too. I haven't thought enough about it. I don't want to set that uh, in stone, but uh, it, it, it seems to make sense. And, uh, and, and even just talking about it here is helping me formulate that a little more clearly. Then on the more conservative side, there's a more extreme teaching, but it's in the Bible, and that is we shun believers who are deliberately and willfully involved in sin. Now, it seems to me the whole idea of shunning, where you (laughs) shut someone out of your life or the church, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, disinvites them to be part of the fellowship, that's after a long process of attempted reconciliation. You don't play that card right away. So... Uh, quite a few years ago, my church actually carried this practice out one time. They had someone who was a severe and destructive gossip in the church, and it was speaking against church leaders. And so they confronted the person, and they did not change. They conf- This went on four or five times of confronting this person over a period of many months, and they continued to run down leaders uh, publicly. Uh, through gossip. And so we finally shunned the person. We disinvited them, excommunicated them from our church. Notice that this was not the first card played, but uh, down the road, if a person persists in willful sin that's harmful to the body, uh, then, hey, it's in the Bible. And I think uh, we need to take account of it. Uh, It's in Corinthians somewhere. I forget exactly where. Well, and it's such a hard teaching for us, again, in our individualistic culture. That is. Where the community is secondary to our desires and choices and that should never be done but you're right it's in scripture and we've got to wrestle with how does that actually play out in the contemporary uh reality we live in and uh yeah. needs to need needs to be thought thought through a little more yeah it, it tends to reinforce people's stereotypes of the church as being judgmental yeah, exactly. you know i got kicked out of church exactly oh yeah well that's how the church is well no there was a long process that went into this a very thoughtful long process sure of sure. correction and the person didn't respond to that correction. That's why this action was taken more mm-hmm. extreme action. Okay. Well, yeah, one more really practical question that mm-hmm. is maybe the hardest, but it is so much on all of our minds these days that I would be remiss not to ask you your thoughts on it. Uh, what do you think about believers using preferred pronouns of others? Yeah, that is a, that is a close call for me. I would say in general terms, there could be exceptions to this, but in general terms, I lean this way. And that is if a person is not a believer, I'm going to respect 
them, I'm going to call them whatever they want to be called. If a person is a believer, and if they're saying that their gender pronoun reflects their primary identity, so that their identity is no longer in Christ, then I'm going to be very reluctant to use that pronoun because I'm reinforcing something that's not true about them. Well, that's maybe not super hard, those two things, but there's more difficult cases. For example, the uh, maybe nominal believer, someone, yeah, you know they're a believer in Jesus, but they're not super active in that lifestyle, or they tend to segregate their spirituality just to Sunday mornings or whatever, uh, and I have a really strong relationship with them, well, then I, I might go one way or the other, or I have a really weak relationship with them, and I don't know them very well, so I might go the other way. So there could be a middle gray area here, but I think it's still helpful to lay out the two main options, that if someone is a true believer in Jesus and they are seeking to follow him, but they have transferred their whole thinking about an identity uh, to their sexuality or gender, then I'm going to be very reluctant to use those pronouns and reinforce that. But if they're not a believer, then uh, we're back to attending the wedding. Then I'm more likely to call them whatever they wish to be called. What do you think? You're being consistent. Yeah, that's that, uh, that's helpful. You're applying the same principle with the wedding, the pronoun. I, I, I appreciate trying to to be consistent in thinking this through. Yeah, I struggle with this too. Uh, Christianity Today just had uh, their cover story on this very issue, and there were both sides presented in the article very well. A case can be made both both ways. Mm-hmm. I love the distinction between the believer and the non-believer. Uh, I, I agree with that. Uh, I think I am inclined to say, again, hopefully in the right way, the right spirit, the right tone, all those caveats, but to say, as I've thought about it, we don't agree. I don't think human flourishing comes from embracing this lifestyle and this gender identity. But as a person, I want to honor you, somebody creating the image of God and, and with your own freedom of will to make decisions. And so, though I'm not endorsing your idea and uh, your sense of what it is to to, to flourish, uh, I, I can appreciate your choice at this time to want to be identified that way. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it'll be really hard for me. It goes against everything that I think is good for you and healthy, mm-hmm. but as a way to stay in the relationship with you, stay in the conversation, continue mm-hmm. to, to love you as a, as a fellow image bearer of, of God's image. Uh, I, I, I'll do so. I got to think more about it, but uh, on this day, as you asked me the question, <laughs> that's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah. I think of parallel cases. Let's say one of my friends who's a believer in Jesus uh, switches over to Islam and they become a uh, an imam. In other words, they become a priest uh, in Islam and they ask me to call them an imam. And that's their title now. Well, I don't agree that Islam is true. I don't believe the Quran gives a true account of reality. I don't believe that they're going to find uh, the kind of flourishing in Islam that they will find in Jesus. Uh, So what do I do then? Well, (laughs) I guess I would tend to respect uh, that person and and call them, if if they weren't a believer in, in Christ and became Muslim, I would respect that. But if they were a believer, then I would have a hard time uh, calling them an imam or calling them uh, some other uh, title that they might have gained 
uh, in the Muslim faith. So one of my strategies, and this isn't new with me, this isn't original with me, one of my strategies when it comes to gender and sexuality, just because it's so emotionally charged, is to think of parallel examples. You gave one earlier. Does God bless all of our desires? No. If we're born with a propensity toward alcoholism, do we just say, well, God gave me that, and that's justified? Not at all. That's a perfect example of a parallel uh, way of thinking uh, regarding gender and sexuality. So you can go to other religions. You can go to other lifestyles. You can go to those uh, desires that we're born with. Those are the sorts of parallels that I find extremely helpful Mm. as a strategy in this whole area of gender and sexuality. And not all the parallels are perfect. Uh, I can see a couple flaws with my uh, Muslim one that I just gave. But uh, Mm. thinking through those parallels, I think, can give us some clarity. Yeah, that's so helpful. All analogies or parallels break down at some point because they are different things by definition. But uh, if they grasp the essential similarity, like I think this one does with Islam, it's really, really helpful. Yeah. What if my believing friend became a Muslim and married a Muslim when I go to that wedding? Ah, okay. you know, figure, figuring that out would shed light on whether I should do so with uh, a gay or lesbian friend. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, you know, Rick, the point of this podcast is to help students flourish as they head off to university, both spiritually and intellectually. And like, I think probably all issues we talk about, a uh, one-hour podcast isn't going to answer it all. So how might you suggest the church better prepare uh, the the youth who are heading off to college or those who are in college now, better prepare themselves to face these social pressures and these alternative views of what's good, true, and beautiful? To my thinking, I really have done a lot of thinking about this, too. My thinking is that the church needs to have a systematic program of training for their youth as they come up through youth ministries, camps and conferences, uh, academies, uh, all of that, that we need to school our young people in whole Bible uh, lifestyle, Genesis to Revelation, and that they need to understand the big picture of Scripture and how their life fits into that, the big story of God and how their life fits into that. Inside that training, it can and should provide training on gender and sexuality. But what I find, unfortunately, is that there is no systematic training of young people in, in many cases, in many churches. And then when you do get to the training in gender and sexuality, it doesn't have any residence in the larger story of God. And so it gets back to what we started with today, and that is that it's this isolated thing, and it doesn't make sense on its own. It only makes sense inside the larger context of Scripture. So A, do our churches have systematic training for our young people in theology, Bible, worldview, lifestyle, mission, prayer, devotion? Is is there a plan in place? And then secondly, how does gender and sexuality fit into that plan? So don't skip the first and go to the second. But if you're in the first, don't skip the second either. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's a priority there. There's a wider container into which gender and sexuality uh, fits more naturally and logically. And then you'll really have something. Then you'll have young people prepared to come to where I worked many years at McAllister College. It was pretty rare that I would see a student show up with that kind of uh, training in their background. Uh, And I'd really like to see more of it, Stan. Okay, let's take those good ideas and transfer them from the church to the home. How might parents better uh, raise up their children in the way they should go, to quote Proverbs? Yeah, 
Uh, well, a home where the parents are actually practicing the faith. That's step one. Uh, you can't just uh, shuffle it off on one parent or the other and then uh, drop the kids off at Sunday school and mm-hmm. pick them up afterwards. So parents who are modeling it. And then secondly, a tip that I picked up from a son of a megachurch pastor recently. His name is uh, Logan. I said, Logan, you and your brother are just doing so well spiritually. How did that happen? A lot of times, you know, the missionary kids and the pastor's kids, they, they don't do well with the faith. And he goes, one of the great things that my parents did is that they did not complain about the church at the dinner table. So all of the problems and the messy stuff that was happening at church, our parents shielded us from those things all the way up through our teens till we were kind of old enough to understand it in a more mature way. Hmm. That's not a big plan, but that is a practical tip. What are we talking about at the dinner table? Are we complaining about the pastor, complaining about the elders, complaining about the church? Our kids sitting and listening to that, they're not going to have a positive image of the church and they won't want to learn there. But I think uh, more in the home, parents need to be looking for opportunities uh, to send their kids to a worldview training, uh, to camps and conferences where they can learn these things and to provide whatever training they can in the home too. Like uh, there's worse things than a weekly Bible reading on a Sunday night in a home. That would be a great practice, but don't do it in a way that's, you know, just top down and it's forced uh, talk through the scriptures a little bit and give kids some room to to talk as well and explain what's going on in the text so it isn't just doesn't feel oppressive to them. Mm-hmm. Do you have any suggestions of worldview academies? Uh, you know there are uh, there's summit ministries. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do some good work and there's um, and and actually John Stone Street was uh, on this podcast and so he said a little bit about that. I can link to that. Oh, fantastic! Yeah. And then uh, our friend, Mike Shutt, uh, he's involved mm-hmm. in one. Uh, Stan, do you remember the he, name of that? He is. Uh, uh, he was on the podcast, too. I'll link to that. Uh, don't. Yeah. I think it might just be Worldview Academy. Yeah, it might be. I can't remember the name of it. And I've worked with them a little bit. I really okay. believe in what they're doing. Great. But then the last thing I would say is that parents need to, to become advocates for strong youth ministry in their churches. So when things go bad at youth ministry, I don't necessarily blame the youth minister, although you know, maybe they have some culpability, but mainly when there's problems in youth ministry, it's the responsibility of the church and the parents, because we need to set up our youth ministers well. We need to Mm -hmm. give clear expectations of our youth pastors, what we want them to do. Mm -hmm. It should be fun and it should be training. It should be both. And if we're settling for fun, then they're not getting the training. If we settle for training, no one's going to show up because it's no fun. (laughs) (laughs) But it's incumbent upon us who are leaders in the church to make sure our youth ministries are strong and they're providing the kind of training that will prepare our young people for college. Really helpful. Thanks. I get so preachy about that, Stan. (laughs) That is really on my heart. Well, you should. (laughs) That's good. I appreciate that, too. I appreciate that, too. Hey, you do a lot of these stump the chumps on campus. Uh, what's the hardest question on this issue you've had that we haven't talked about? Yeah, I think anything to do with gender and sexuality is the hardest set of questions that I get overall, because I get questions on a whole variety of theological, philosophical, and personal issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, anything about I, I believe God has given me these desires. Do you expect me to curb these desires for the rest of my life? You know, a student who really puts mm-hmm. puts that to me in a direct way. Uh, that's hard because now I'm on the spot to say, well, yes, you know, mm-hmm. well, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it that way. Now I'm 
zooming out, not backpedaling necessarily, but I'm zooming out to the larger framework of Scripture and what it means to define human flourishing in scriptural terms. So back out to that and then zoom back in on their question. Mm -hmm. Do we trust in the character and the teaching of God to lead us into human flourishing in his ways, the way he defines it? So in that way, I'm kind of putting the question back to them. Where is your trust? And if they're not a believer, then I might say, well, if you're not interested in being a disciple of Jesus, that changes this whole discussion. Then we can talk about that a different time. And I don't really want to be proclaiming a lot on secular culture here. But if you're a believer and you want to be a believer in Jesus, then we need to talk through the larger teaching in Scripture about this issue. Yeah, always situating the conversation in the broader truths that we already know. Exactly. Always zoom out. (laughs) So important. So important. Good. Read my lips. Always zoom out. (laughs) Rick, as we draw to a close, is there anything else you want to make sure we talk about we've not discussed? I think young people in their teens, as they look at college, they're going to have a lot of choices. You've probably talked about this in other podcasts, and I've listened listened to quite a few of of the College Faith podcasts and enjoyed them. Thank you. But you you have to know what you're getting into. If you go to a state school and live off campus, that's one experience. If you go to a private secular school and live on campus, that's a completely different experience. You need to be ready for that. If you go to a Christian college, that's going to be different than the experience uh, where I worked at McAllister College or Hamlin University or St. Olaf College. Those are three places that I worked here in Minnesota. Maybe. Yes. Though I've heard of Christian colleges having the exact same issues and challenges as secular, quote unquote, universities. So that's not a foregone conclusion. (laughs) Yeah. Now, being a philosopher, you know that there's the football in the middle. There's the overlap, (laughs) the Mm -hmm. Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. They're going to be same in certain respects, but different in other respects. And then even on the Christian college spectrum, whether you live on campus or off campus, whether you take classes online or in person, all those things are going to be Mm -hmm. different experiences. And I think it's wise for students and their parents and their community to decide what's best for me now financially and spiritually, what's best for me now? I would have said 30 years ago, hey, everyone should go to the secular college if you're a Christian and be a missionary there. I've backed off from that because I've seen how strong the the uh, the doctrines are on secular campuses about secularism, and that includes gender and sex- sexuality. So I hate to say it, but there is some level of indoctrination that you're going to get on secular campus. So if you're ready for that and you can stand up to the challenges of that, then maybe being a missionary on a secular campus, whether it's public or private, maybe that is your calling. And we need some of those in uh, InterVarsity where I work because we need those student leaders. Mm -hmm. And I've actually had somebody in on the podcast to talk about how do you think that through more in terms of Christian versus secular versus. So I'll link to that in the show notes as well if listeners are interested in that. Nice. I really appreciate that discussion. So you just have to gauge where you're at financially and where you're at spiritually and decide what your calling is and make a wise decision because there's a whole range of choices there. And some students are, you know, skipping university these days. They're going to uh, a vocational school or they're going uh, to military or they're going out into the job market. There's lots of places you can go these days. And uh, we need the gift of wisdom in talking Mm -hmm. these issues through with uh, parents and with fellow students and with our uh, community, with our church and pastors. 
and make a wise decision about where to go. Good word. Well, I so appreciate you wrestling through these issues and sharing your thoughts. Uh, is there a, a, a website you suggest or a book or two for those listeners who want to take the next step and, and engage this further? Yeah, my book, Faith is Like Skydiving, is a, a book that coaches your conversations in apologetics. But it coaches them in evangelism as well. So it's Faith is Like Skydiving and Other Memorable Images for a Dialogue with Seekers and Skeptics. And the whole point of that book is to coach you through these conversations. So if you're in conversations where people are asking hard questions, uh, there's a whole, whole bunch of them listed there in the book. And mm. you'll gain resources for how to have productive conversations with non-Christians around difficult questions. Great. The issue of LGBTQ is not in there per se. It's hinted at here and there, but uh, all the other apologetic or the main ones that you can think of are probably in there. And then secondly, uh, rickmatsonoutreach.com is my website. And there's uh, mainly the blogs that are there. People can go through. And I've got uh, apologetics for kids in there. There's a whole section, uh, three blogs, I think right now. And I'm going to add a fourth. Uh, What would it mean to... uh, do apologetics for our kids because our kids need not just a what they need a why Mm -hmm. we're good at telling them what to believe, but we also need to share with them why to believe. So apologetics for kids should be huge in the church, but it's not. And uh, that pains me. So I have some examples in there. Great. Rick Matson outreach.com. We'll put those all in the show notes and encourage listeners to go and uh, see those resources uh, that, you're suggesting and hopefully will be helpful. Yeah. Uh, thank you for this conversation. It has been rich Yeah. and to help me in my thinking on some things and uh, just, uh, just appreciate the work you've done on this to, to in a loving way, affirm biblical values and the vision of human flourishing that God offers. Yeah. Wow. It's huge. Well, thank you for inviting me on Stan. Great to hang out with you. You too. Let's do it again. Let's do Take care. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word by liking my College Faith Facebook page at Facebook dot com slash college faith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond. <laughs>